0: Gentlemen, welcome to The Financial Mentor with David Boyer. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of The Financial Mentor. Thank you so much for joining us again. The show's gone through another renovation because that's what we get to do with podcasts. And thank you so much for everyone who keeps giving me feedback on what we should tweak and change with the show. This week, we've got an amazing show lined up. Joining me for this first section is Michael Coleman, the founder and managing director. I don't know what your title is, Michael, but... We might have a chat about that in a moment of a great company called Digital Thing, and we're going to talk about one of the hardest things that business owners seem to struggle with, how to remunerate yourself, how to get cash out of the business, to fund your lifestyle and make sure that the business has enough cash to do what it needs to do. Michael,
1: thanks for joining us on The
0: Financial Mentor.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. So, I'm a digital strategist. Um, Co-founder of Digital Thing, uh, we set up the business five years ago, and it was really uh, a way of us deviating away from being freelancers and technicians, um, and really uh, putting in a value in terms of dollars on the work we can produce. It got to a point where, you know, we weren't charging enough, we were working crazy hours and we just weren't putting out the work that we were really proud of. So yeah, Chris and myself came together five years ago, started digital thing and yeah, here we are now. But your business journey didn't start five years ago and you started as – I
0: remember talking to you when you, you quit your job as a disgruntled Telstra employee. We used to catch up for lunch in the park at <laughs> yeah, the church that, on Collins Street. And, and, and from there you went out and just became a freelancer.
1: Yeah, so I kind of stumbled across um, websites, building uh, WordPress websites, and um, kind of got a go from a friend of mine, uh, hacked my way through my first couple of sites and just kind of got on a groove and um, figured it all out from there. So yeah, a really interesting journey from kind of being that technician, understanding, okay, this is how I'm gonna implement a project, which I kind of grasped really early on, but then, you know, came up against difficulties of actually running a business and what, what that all means, really. Between when you started as the freelancer and then owning a business, how many, how many people are in your your business now? Yeah, so we've got eight guys now. Has your role changed on that? that yeah, so the role changes every single day and every <laughs> single minute. <laughs> But, um, yeah, and it still will forever change. But, um, yeah, the idea was that when we were freelancers, um, yeah, Chris would kind of do the back-of-house production and I'd do front-of-house sales and um, project management. But that's also gone, chopped and changed for the years as well. But, yeah, as we we currently stand, um, I'm predominantly doing sales, uh, client relationship, project management and kind of get on the tools here and there still.
0: Do you think of yourself as the guy responsible for the quality of the work or the guy responsible for the quality of the business?
1: Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. Chris has a huge influence over this. He's um, uh, particularly big in branding, putting out quality from the get-go. So. Anything from the first interaction, whether that's um, our email signatures are, <laughs> are nice and crisp, uh, all of our documents um, have our logo, and they've all got the same fonts, uh, everything we present to clients, um, yeah, really focused on branding and that kind of gives us that boutique kind of feel. You want to stay boutique? Yeah, we will stay boutique. I guess um, from our perspective, it's uh, kind of like a lifestyle business. Um, you know, we've got we've got our thoughts on scale and growth, um, but yeah, ultimately this business is just funding our lifestyle. I mean, you're a you're a knowledge based
0: business, really. For all the technology that you use, fundamentally, your success is based on the talent in your business. So, scaling a services business where you're not blue collar workers, you're not you're not unionised no. builders with you know with a hammer and Oh, yeah, wow, I'm so out of touch with using my, my hands. Oh, no, I don't they still use hammers. Hopefully, maybe that's been some automatic hammer out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, we can but build it. We can build it, yeah. <laughs> but, um,
1: but how,
0: I guess, when, when, you, when what you sell is knowledge. Does that scale? Um, I think to a degree
1: it does. I think
0: you sell a website, that's the outcome. Yeah, but but yeah. it's your knowledge that creates
1: that. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, the guys we hire um, are all A players. And so everyone we sort of deal with, um, their output's kind of better than the next guy that comes along. Um, But, yeah, in terms of scale, it's just a matter of us getting bigger projects, working on bigger clients and kind of working our way up the ladder that way. Um, And then in terms of the scale, uh, it's not really about um, numbers for us. So we're not trying to push 100 websites out the door in a month. We really want to focus still on that, you know, whether that number's five or ten, real low scale, but then eventually climb up so we're getting bigger projects to work on. So for a business like yours, the right client is more important than the amount of clients. That's right. That's um, been a real big learning experience for us over the last year or two especially. Um, You know, early on from my freelance days it was like, you know, get as many clients as you can because, you know, I was only charging $50 a month so to earn... Any good money, you had to yeah, work a lot of hours. Yeah, exactly right. And now it's um, you know, we've got like some really good case studies. We've worked with some really big clients, and um, yeah, we we kind of put a premium price on our product, and um, the clients that are willing to pay for that the guys we kind of want to work with and get good relationships, long-term relationships out of them as well. Those
0: projects are better margins? You make more money off them?
1: Yeah, so in terms of margins, we're still working on that. Uh, some projects we win uh, really well and really nicely on. Others, you know, we, we sort of lose. I guess that's like with all uh, service industry-based yeah. businesses. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a combination of both really margin is important
0: because margin and the creation of profit is fundamentally what creates cash yep. and the availability of cash is how you fund the lifestyle that you're talking about and you're a guy who goes on a couple of holidays a year that you don't, That's you, right. you want a nice lifestyle so how important is that alignment you know when you're sitting there and you're pitching for work do you actually sit there and think well are you going to help me achieve the lifestyle that I want are you that disciplined with
1: it? Yeah, I don't. I don't think about it. I don't like embedded it embedded in my day to day because um, I think the most important thing, and it, it's you know, it's sort of come full circle on this. Um, when you're in that growth mindset, you're in that scale mindset. You're very much going out there to get as many sales as you can. But when you sort of focus on the, the lifestyle business, um, I think it's a game of putting out real quality work and um, trying to get the referral out of that client from so, you know, we've done a great job for client A, they're going to refer us to client B. So uh, I think when you, when you sort of focus on that, you get a lot of good relationships, good partnerships out of it and therefore, yeah, okay, that's how I sort of think about it. Do you actually ask those clients referrals? Uh, yeah, it's a good question and the answer is no. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? That? Yeah.
0: Like, I remember when I was working as a banker at, at NAB, they did some report that something like 60% of our clients were happy to refer to us, but only 20% of bankers asked. Yeah. What happens that you don't ask? Is it because you're the frontline technical worker, you're the person still who's managing that client, it becomes hard to ask them to help you grow your business? It becomes hard to ask them to pay your bill that's overdue. That's right. It, why do we view that our business is different
1: from theirs. Yeah, that's right because um, it's all a mindset really and um, I think there are times where we shouldn't be ashamed to to ask for the referral. I've thought about this uh, many times over. I've written systems for it but I I just still haven't executed it to this day. Talk us through that. You wrote systems for
0: referrals but you, as the business owner, whose lifestyle is dependent on it, you don't follow it.
1: Yeah, so the system was um, was kind of like um, the, the project's finished And the idea was we we would ask for um, a testimonial and off the back of the testimonial then it kind of gives you, you know, the glowing report and then you you could follow up and ask um, for any referrals. But yeah, the the reality is that you kind of just get stuck into the day-to-day grind of um, getting, shipping stuff out the door. Being proud but, of the work but, that you do, exactly right. But yeah, it's
0: that. It's that it, you, you've just proven the conflict between the technical worker and the business yeah, owner. that's right. The business uh, owner wants you asking for a referral. Yeah, I got a lifestyle to fund. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I need to go to Thailand next yeah. week. How am I going to get?
0: I, gonna I gonna go don't there? want to go to the W. <laughs> I want to get a suite at the W. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the um, I'm curious to know then, as your business has grown. How have you paid yourself?
1: Yeah, so a uh, really interesting question, and something I'm actually quite passionate about. And um, when I'm speaking to new business owners, I always kind of tell them this story because I think it's important. You're the type
0: of guy who a lot of yeah. people say, hey, can we catch up for a coffee? Yeah. Like to pick your brain
1: up. Yeah, I love a free coffee. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I guess. Um, early days, I kind of just had the business credit card and, you know, would buy my lunch on it, uh, buy dinners, take my wife out and, and that's how I just kind of lived, you know, day to day. And then I kind of thought to myself, well, you yeah, there has to be a better way to do this. So what I decided to do, I sort of came to the realisation as well that, um, you know, by taking money out of the business, um, you know, what, what happens in a couple of years' time if I get that opportunity to sell? Um, and someone reviews the books, and they're like, "Hey, you're spending fifty bucks on sushi every week, and yeah, twenty bucks on coffee." I don't want to, don't want to expose that. But um, yeah, so the so I sort of just came to the realization one day that um, I want to pay myself pay YG, uh, and I wanted to do that because um, I wanted to pay myself super, keep everything above board, but also treat myself as if I was an employee. So what I kind of mean by that is, um, you know, if I'm now in a position where, you know, I, I you know, sort of deem myself maybe as a CEO, then I, I should pay myself that amount of money because if one day I then need to hire a CEO, I've kind of got that money in there to say, okay, this is, you know, this is what I'm ultimately paying myself and then the CEO can come in and I can pay, afford to pay that guy. So, yeah, I started off paying myself um, 600 bucks every month. And living large. Living large, right. And um, that was just kind of just to get into this routine. So I sort of thought to myself, okay, well, six months paying, you know, th- you know 600 bucks isn't a lot of money. Um, eventually increase that to every fortnight, uh, then every week, and then um, I've kind of just gone up from there. So, at the, at, at the, the idea
0: of bringing in a CA is very interesting, but I don't know if you, you even noticed this when you were talking. You talk about the pride you have in your work. But you almost softened your voice a bit when you said, I guess I'm kind of the CEO. Yeah. How do you view yourself in your business?
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's funny. I don't um, sort of see our business in the short term getting a CEO per se. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of the um, guy that goes out there and will sort of knock on doors, try to drum up business. You know, that, the hustle of it all I, I kind of love. Um, but then I also love giving, like, really good advice. So, you know, getting, getting that call from the client that knows I've got the tech brain and, you know, sort of says, hey, Michael, can I pick your brain? So there's sort of, yeah, different aspects that I love of the business. But, um, yeah, that CEO role, I don't even know what the CEO <laughs> does. Maybe you can well, share some well, insight. Well, we just got a CEO in yeah. our
0: business at SQL mm-hmm. CFO. It's been a, a huge journey for me. And one of the hardest bits is holding yourself back from meddling. Yeah. It's, it's a tough thing to do. I mean, your whole image and identity of yourself as attached to your business has to change. Yeah. You talk to anybody who's done these sort of things and, and, and I spoke to about five different people and they all said uh, your biggest risk is you. Yeah. them. Yeah. pretty scary, I tell you. But you, you love two things in your business. You love the hustle of growing it and finding the deal. Yeah. And you love when your work works.
1: Yeah, that's right. Do you reckon that'll ever change? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, the the hustle of it all is just meeting different people with different problems and coming up with solutions for that. So, yeah, I'm sort of addicted to that. Um, and the good quality work is, you know, kind of like when you put on a, a new shirt, a brand new shirt, that feeling and you've had your hair cut, you always feel good about that. So <laughs> that's sort of how I see it. So do you call your work dapper? Yeah, it is. A dapper project <laughs> dapper, yeah.
0: <laughs> Michael, you're a you're committed to business learning. You're a lifelong learner. You're always reading. Yeah. What's the something you've read recently that's really blown you away?
1: Yeah. So I just um, read The Company of One, uh, which is um, a really interesting concept, um, and we also just touched on it as well on, on scale. And um, so his premise is um, pretty much what I I've sort of thought. Um, you know for the last five years is, you know, this concept of having targets of, you know, million-dollar revenue. and then when you hit that million-dollar rev, what are you going to do next? Do you go to two? Do you go to five? Do you go to ten? When does it ever become enough? And, um, yeah, one of the big big takeouts for me uh, that resonated was, um, yeah, this idea of, you know, we got into business and we we're proud of what we did, um, you know, five years ago. Let's just go back to that, stick to the basics, Um, Do what you do well, service your clients, make them happy and um, the rest will come.
0: Michael Coleman, thank you very much for coming on The Financial Mentor. Hey, how do people get in touch with you?
1: They can find me on LinkedIn, uh, just Michael Coleman, (laughs) not too many of us, just um, Coleman's without an E though. Uh, Or, yeah, my website at digitalthing.com.au. Thank you, Michael. Thanks.
0: Joining us again for our next segment on The Financial Mentor is Karen McKenzie, our technology mentor. Mate, we've got a ripper topic today. We're talking about reinvestment. And and what I really want to have a great chat to you about is, particularly if a business has surplus cash, they can see where, where trends are going and they want to invest in innovation. How do you do that? Like, let's go beyond buzzwords here. Let's lift the lid on it. How does a business choose to invest in innovation? What is innovation? Well, Look, there's
2: so much in that and the first thought going through my mind is I'll just give someone my bank account and they can just invest in me and we'll call it innovation. <laughs> that would <will> be fantastic. <laughs> now look, the reality is I think true innovation, and this is something that I personally have always kind of hung up on, I, from a technologist's point of view, I love to go to innovation being a tech solution. but. Innovation's not that. It's simply the permission in your business to ask the question, is there a better way of doing this? Is there a roadblock that needs to be removed? Is there a process that needs to be changed? Is there just simple pieces of the puzzle that we can do better, first and foremost? It's not about the house, not about the technology, it's just simply giving your teams permission to ask the question, is there a
0: better way of doing this? Okay, so let's start with because I think that that you need a really good culture to be able to innovate, so we'll get to leadership the role leadership mm-hmm. plays in a moment. Leadership is a, uh, innovation is as simple as finding one process in your business and finding a way to make it easier. So innovation often gets talked about blue sky thinking, new business models, new revenue models, digitization. Um, we go really right to the extreme, but in the average business, it's really about optimising the operations, the yeah, day-to-day yeah. what needs to get done. Yeah, it is, it is. And, and
2: you're right, we, we, we love shiny things. We love the poster child. We want those hero stories of true innovation where someone's found some microorganism that's turning some rubbish into new airplane fuel. I mean, that's <laughs> innovation, right? Not Karen shifted the in-tray from one millimetre over there to one millimetre over there and saved half an hour in the way that he processes the in-tray. That's not innovation but actually it is, mm. right? Um, and I think there's another thing that goes so well yeah. with this space. Do you really think he could save half an hour for moving an inch a millimeter? a um, millimetre? Yeah, over a day. Probably. Okay. Yeah, I know. We're, 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 it depends on how far you want to go with that, but you, you absolutely can by simply saying if it took me an extra, I don't know, two seconds or a second to reach over and get something and pull it over here by moving the tray, simply save me by one second. If I'm doing that over, I don't know, let's say hundred invoices, that's a hundred seconds in a day. What is that in a minute? So you know, you are saving. Okay, so maybe it's not 30 minutes, but you're saving time, right? I think we're given a good example of how micro-innovation can be, though. (laughs) It it absolutely can be, you know, and and yes, they can go from the sublime to the ridiculous in that sort of space. But what I was going to say in light of that, by the way, and actually that's a good example, is innovation's coupled with this idea of the hypothesis. Okay, so you look at a situation, you go, the intro's in the wrong place. My hypothesis is if I move it, I can be more efficient and I'll save some time well, how do I test that? What do I do with that? But you mentioned culture being so important. Well, this idea of innovation has to go hand in hand with the idea of failure and being safe to fail. You can't be allowed to ask the question, is there a better way of doing something? If you can't stop and go, okay, no, it's not better, right? The interest should have stayed where it was for some of the reason I didn't know at the time, right? So you have to have
0: that safe space to be able to experiment. I don't like this culture of failure stuff. I never have. It never sits really well with me because I think if you don't have it in the right leadership environment, the right cultural environment, there's no accountability. So to me, it's less about a culture of, you know, it's okay to fail, but more a culture of we want to get somewhere... Do whatever you need to do to get there, and but communicate with us and tell us what you're doing, individual employee, because we don't want you going too far down the wrong track, and we don't want you going too far left when our business is going right. And we're communicating with you as leaders of where the business is going. Yep. And we don't want you burning through time. We don't want you, but definitely want you burning through uh, cash. And perhaps most importantly, we don't want you distracting the workers around you. So it becomes. Uh, the innovation itself, with the way we're talking about it, is not a separate innovation department. It's not a separate, necessarily, budget for innovation. Yeah. It's everybody inside the business having an attitude of, is there a better way to do something? And knowing what to do about that, who to go to, who to tell, what to try themselves, what they're enabled, uh, power, empowered to do themselves. I- exactly.
2: And I think this is where we wrestle with the fit and the type of business. If you're talking a large corporate you know, um, and I've, I've had the pleasure of sitting down with the uh, Google X team. So this is their dedicated innovations team that are off on the side and talking through the idea of safe to fail versus it's okay to fail versus these innovation frameworks. But I've also sat with so many small teams, three or four bookkeepers who are simply saying, how do we innovate in our business, right? Um, and they just sit around over a table. And the idea is, yes, encourage the team to have the conversation, explore it together, learn together, ask those questions in that space where it's safe, but also we're adults. And so you do have to think about the reality of the business, right? I still have to service my customers. I still am trying to get you know, more money in faster or more money out faster. There's the practical side of the business that we have to address. And so it's, it's using common sense along with the ability to ask those questions on the way through.
0: You said that innovation starts with a hypothesis. Does it start with an outcome in mind? Like, do I need to have a vision of what my future state is going to be? Yes, is the answer. So, a- absolutely. So how do
2: I come up with that? Well, see, so that's the tricky part, right? So you, you, you're sitting in your environment and you're saying, I think... Could you give that... us three tips without notice? Without notice. Wow. Um, caffeine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, so I think, I think the reality is, is, is yes, So. a the three tips I would come up with would be give the staff the ability to ask the questions first, right? What am I doing right now? I'm trying to get cash in faster or I'm trying to save some time or what am I trying to do, right? Acknowledge Service a customer better. Exactly, delight a customer, do something. Um, so if you can identify that, then the next part is what's in place today? What am I doing right now? So, I'm manually moving something from A to B, I'm manually copying data from A to B, I'm manually sending an invoice, something like that. And then the third part is, where do I start to explore? What do I think might happen if I change it, right? So, that's the hypothesis starting to come to fruition. I know what I need to get to, I know roughly or I know how I'm doing it today, and I think there's a better way of doing it, this is what we could get to.
0: Because that gives you a measurement of success on that as well. So let's talk about measurement then, because the resources, the actual investment that needs to be required, isn't necessarily freeing up cash to try something. The investment is in leadership time and management time, of somebody who's doing this.
2: And and that leadership comes down to a number of things. There is the framework of innovation within the business. That is, what is our hypothesis structure? How do we as a team acknowledge, hey, I think I've identified a problem, I think I've identified the way we're doing it today, and I think I have a, a hypothesis on the outside. What are we doing on that? The next part is then, what are your measurements so that you're saying, on that journey, we're gonna test these activities and we will know Either we got to a successful outcome, which is fantastic, or we didn't. And then it comes to the three P's, and you'll have heard this before, I'm sure, which is um, pivot, persevere, or perish. And those three P's are the conversation you
0: have around those metrics. You just mentioned uh, hypothesis, decision hypothesis structure, hypothesis framework. framework. Can you? What is that? Um, it's a fancy word. Yeah, um, that's what I'm for, asking. Um, I'm <laughs> bamboozled, I don't know how the <laughs> listeners are feeling.
2: <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's the way that your business creates and supports hypothesis thinking. So there's lots of things. There's there's lean thinking, there's design thinking, there's all these different ways and languages
0: online that you'll look at. It, as a small business, is as simple as getting everyone together and saying, right, guys, we need to do things better. Here's a whiteboard. Exactly. Write it on a post-it note and stick yep. it on the whiteboard. Yep, exactly that is,
2: as a team, we're going to set aside every second Friday or every or the first Friday of the month, whatever it might be, to sit down together over a lunch, um, bring your own lunch or put lunch on, whatever, um, and we're going to have a conversation. Your task before then is look around the business and come to that lunch session with things that you think could be improved. And then you just start writing them on a whiteboard. Write them all down, have a conversation around it, and think, okay, what are the things we think are pain points? How do we think? Is it within our skill set to solve these things? And then you can move from there. And that, that's your very basic framework. Then, yes, there are proper um, established frameworks throughout that you can go and look on Google and, and have a look for you know, hypothesis um, and design thinking and these sort of things. Uh, and you'll find different frameworks you can apply. It simply starts with you as a team. Thinking diligently about how you want to. So do it. it's something
0: that the average business owner or entrepreneur, or just anybody inside a business, can just jump on YouTube and learn this stuff. In a few oh, minutes. absolutely. We might put yes. a few links in the show yep. notes as well of ones that you you recommend yep. we'll uh, find people some. to have a look at. So this is this is really operational type innovation. Let's just say I want to. I like what this is this is doing to my business, but let's just say there are some staff who aren't engaging in the process. Uh, how do you manage? You know, what 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 gets measured, gets. What's the phrase? What's get what gets measured gets outcomes. Or yeah, there is a. How, how do you measure the involvement in this? How do you reward employees are getting involved in this sort of stuff? Because you want to be careful not to divide your culture. A lot of people. In the last week's show, we spoke about people in accounts receivables roles being made redundant because of technology. Yeah. Um, and those people, mostly, they're not necessarily growth-focused people, you know, individual growth. They just want to rock up and do a good job and get paid. Yep. You're going to have people like that inside an organisation. And you actually need people yes. like yep. that. So managing this culture of you're in the innov- cool, sexy innovation team, you're not. Yep. It, it, it
2: does it cause a
0: conflict? Oh, it absolutely does.
2: Oh, massively. There, is, there are loads of reasons why people themselves don't fit within those those boxes of being an innovative person or being someone who's safe to work but also at different times and stages in our lives we as individuals are sometimes less or more risk-averse to innovation to change and that sort of thing so the reality is we talk about change management here really it's it's we're going to change something we're going to move something we're going to move that dial um, so you do need to be very conscious of the language you're using with your staff and be very careful about the rewards it's it's very common for people to say you know what I'm just going to put a dollar figure on the reward system. Dollars don't generally drive outcome. Mm. People want other things other than that. And I'm sure you've had many conversations before around how you reward staff and keep them focused on the business. And it could simply be recognition of allowing them to have an extra four hours off in a week, or let them go and do something else or explore some other area, or maybe pay for them to go and see a movie or do an online course, right? The, The recognition of someone's good work is different
0: to just give them money on the table? We have, uh, at Sequel CFO, everybody in our uh, executive team or in our head office team all has side community projects. Yeah. Whether they be industry groups, local charities, everyone's spending probably half a day a week, so we, it's quite heavy for us because we view it as how can we be leaders in our business if we're not leaders in our community? Yeah, yeah. Um, Both business and our, our, our sort of the community that we live in, that's a big investment, but everybody who's involved with us can see that this is part of our culture
2: exactly and and those reflections of culture reflects what the brand stands for who you as a team are and it also talks to the type of staff you attract into the roles and so if if you're seen as an innovation business and you are allowing your staff to do things and to think differently and be creative in the way they execute on their role and they're held to account and they're measured and they're recognized and rewarded for that You'll naturally attract people who want to be in that environment and you're less likely to attract those who
0: are plodding along and just doing a nine-to-five job. Hey, Karen, this is a topic we could talk about for an extremely long time. Unfortunately, time is up for us. But thanks very much for joining us in The Financial Mentor again. No worries. Great
2: to be
1: here.
0: Joining us for the pitch is Dr. Adam Bumpus from a really interesting startup called Red Grid. Uh, we're here at the Yellow uh, YBF Ventures, um, incredible co working space, who's arranged our introduction today. Adam, thanks for joining us. Well, no problem. It's great to be here. Now, you're an experienced podcaster yourself, so I didn't have to give you too many tips on this, which is fantastic. Uh, talking to the mic, you know, nice distance from yep. the. We're going to start off with a pitch, though. What
3: is Red Grid? What problem do you solve, and how do you do it? So Red Grid is a software company that is building out what we're calling the Internet of Energy. And what this is, is the ability for all the energy devices we have in our homes or in our shops or in our universities to speak to each other and respond and orchestrate so we're using our energy as efficiently as possible. What this means is a couple of things. The first thing is that you can cut your energy bill because it's only switching on when you actually need it to. And the second bit is we can get more renewable energy onto the grid because we're able to balance out and make those really nasty peaky bits of energy nice and smooth. So uh, that's what Red grid is doing solving a big problem here because earlier this year in Victoria we had blackouts rolling blackouts because we had a couple of 45 degree days and if we look at the climate science we're going to have more of those in the future uh, and we're also going to have more renewables on the grid and that means we get extra volatility of the voltage on the grid we get extra problems with where the energy is being produced and where it's being consumed and we're likely to see more of those blackouts in fact the Australian Energy Market Operator has already said that we are going to see more blackouts if we don't get our grid sorted out and so that's a massive problem for us in Australia because we're a very rich country with lots of great stuff happening, and yet we're still experiencing energy blackouts. So the problem with that is that we can take turn that and flip it on its head and turn it into an opportunity. So we've got all these amazing solar resources here in Australia. We've got batteries coming to market. Really amazing. Oh, I thought you were talking about the sun, but <laughs> the sun, the sun is amazing as well. But the actual solar energy resource is incredible, and um, you know, renewable energy is now cheaper than fossil fuel. It it's makes complete sense for us to have this. So we can be the solar powerhouse of the world. But if we're going to be the solar powerhouse of the world, we have to balance our grid. And so uh, this gives us a great opportunity because we've got extra cheap renewable energy and we're going to have 200 billion IoT devices, the Internet of Things devices, by the middle of the next decade. So that's a lot. In fact, each of us is going to be connected to 23 different IoT devices, which is kind of nuts, right? What that means is, what can we do with all of this energy and what can we do with all of these IoT devices while well, we can put them together? And when we put them together and help them transact with each other at a device level, we've got Red Grid. And that is like the internet now. We just take it for granted we use it. That will be the internet of energy that we'll take for granted in the future.
0: Brilliant pitch. Thank you very much. Now, what it's actually going to mean, though, is that as I walk around my house and I use things that require energy, you have smart systems who understand my usage patterns, understand my whereabouts, and keep things powered at a level that allows me to use it not too much more, so it costs me uh, too much, and not too much less, so that the thing doesn't actually
3: work, which is brownout type scenario. Exactly, precisely. So a good example is your air conditioner, right? So we get it, we get in the afternoon, everyone goes home and switches on their air conditioner when they get home from work, and they blast it out to try and get it down. So you, you take it right down to 18 degrees to try and get as co- much cold air as possible. What we can do is we can send you a message in the afternoon and say, hey, we're going to pre-cool your house for you, so when you get home, it's already nice and cool. What we can do then is we can shift that big demand in the afternoon to earlier in the day, so you're at work, your air conditioner automatically comes on, starts cooling your house down to a nice, nice 22 degrees, you don't have to blast it when you get home, and actually then when you get home, the air is nice and cool, and we can start to switch off the compressor in the air conditioner, so you just have nice, cool air being blown around, and you only have to do that maybe 15 minutes every two hours, or half an hour every Two hours and you've saved a ton of a ton of money on your energy bill because at that time of the day energy is much more expensive. So the idea about this is your energy devices actually have an intelligence by themselves. They can figure out what to do. And if you get home and you're like, no, I want it to be 18 degrees, you just override it. No problem. I'm an 18 degrees kind of guy,
0: so that's great. But the um the the problem that you're solving is massive and we've heard about it for a long time and I feel like every six months or so there's a lot of press around a startup or a mm. business that's trying to address it and they, you kind of don't hear about them again. I think part of the reason for that is the people who you need to get on board, the big energy companies, mm. are big, old and, and like the profits off the way they're doing things right now. What are some of the challenges in selling to businesses like this?
3: So the challenge is selling to, to big businesses like this in energy is that energy, being, energy has been produced for the last two hundred fifty years in pretty much the same way: dig up the dead dinosaurs, burn the dinosaurs, make steam, make electricity. That's that's really what it's been for two hundred fifty years. So to change that is really tough. But we're seeing things that are changing from the, the utilities uh, who are thinking about this because. They know this is coming. They know the decentralization of this energy is coming. You know, you got solar. we've got the highest penetration of solar rooftop in the world, in Australia. They know that fossil fuels are going out and it's going to, It's now cheaper to create renewables. Uh, and they know that digitalization is here. They know that, you know, Google and, and Amazon and Alexa are in the house. They're already talking to consumers and they're worried about that. And so what we need is this solution that is a very energy-focused digital solution. And so... Yes, it's hard working with big organizations and we're working with a number of different utilities, uh, retailers and generators who are saying, we realize our business model is gonna to have to change, we're trying to figure out how to make that happen and make it better for our customers. Because in the end, most people really don't care about their energy, they really don't care about, it. they just care that the stuff is working.
0: Well, no, but business, I think businesses do though, because yeah, the, it's a
3: different do. mindset, a bit, a bit there, because the cost is so direct to the way they exist. Um. Yes, it depends. If you're talking about commercial, industrial, yeah businesses worry about, you know, if they've got a massive bill to pay. That's very true. Um, And so we're helping them. But if we're talking about, like, just go back to retailers and talking about what it means for customers, the key bit there is the actual end user often doesn't think about it. They just pay their bill. Now, there's a lot of people who find that really hard, right? Because energy is expensive. And so some people really care about their energy. What we want to do is bridge the gap and help those people who really care about energy, because it's expensive, help them to pay it off, to pay it even easier with clean, free, clean energy, and help people who don't really care about their energy bill just to have a comfortable you know, super nice 22 degrees inside the house and save some money. But the key bit here for the end user is that it's got to be seamless and it's got to be totally easy to use. And that's where we, we see this happening. So quite a lot of this, you can think about things like uh, Google Maps. So for a long time, people were like, oh, I'm not sure about my phone tracking where my location is. Now, a lot of people are like, just track my location. I want to know how to get to the cafe the easiest way. So you just kind of accept that that's an automated machine-learned response that you're happy to have in your pocket. And that'll be the same with energy. We're happy that the air conditioner switches off a bit, but if it affects me, I want to override it. Mm. Or I want to train it to be, to be the most personalized version that I can be for myself, which we can do. But for industry... You're absolutely right. So for big organizations, we're working with some facilities management companies who've got large clients, who've got multiple different buildings in different places. They're paying a fortune for that. You're absolutely right. And that isn't changing. Because the tariffs are still high, they're still having to buy in bulk, they're still you know, using energy consultants to go out there and find the best deal, but it's still a significant cost. Now, well, what if we could help those organizations by balancing out the energy costs between the different buildings? So they can actually start to reduce their total net uh, energy bill, but also give people the, the option to say, well, my air conditioner is running in this room that no one's in right now. Why am I paying for that? Why don't I sell that to someone else who's then going to be prepared to pay a higher price? Because they really need the energy at that point in time. And that's where we're heading. We're heading for this really open market that we can help these buildings or these devices talk to each other without us having to really do anything. Uh, Adam, it's a very exciting time. Do you
0: have any types of businesses out there who are struggling to come up with their big idea
3: because you don't seem to have struggled with that. <laughs> it is, it's really tough, right? It's, uh, this is my third energy startup, um, energy and sustainable development startup. And it's really hard, right? I mean, the thing, the thing is, the ideas are cheap. You know, everyone come up with some idea. It's actually executing and doing it which is really hard so we've been really lucky right we've got a group of five of us who are very passionate about this project very passionate about bringing clean energy for everybody um, and we've all got different backgrounds so my background's in climate change and communications and my co-founder and my CTO's background is deep blockchain, deep financial services uh, and so we and my other co-founders have got you know marketing in New York and lots of really great skills the real challenge if you want to do a startup, is to think through, like, I love the problem. I I want to solve this problem. The solution then comes along second. You think, hey, this is a really cool solution that can solve this. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And here's my team. And that's the only way to pull this together. So if there is an idea, be in love with the problem, not the solution. That's the critical bit. And then find the solution and the team that goes from there. Because if you're galvanizing, you're passionate about that solution, you will then galvanize the team around you. I gotta say, it's the most exciting thing to do because everyone's in it. Like we're in it to win it, and uh, it's a tough time, but it's also it's, it's it's super cool and super inspiring to be with people who just want to make it happen. Adam Bumpus, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here.
1: A Financial Mentor with David Boyer.